Oaks East. It's Tuesday, April the 14th. We are a couple of days after Easter Sunday, but we're still in the Easter season. Uh, the 50 days from Easter Sunday until Pentecost is called Eastertide. And so I hope you're doing well today, and I hope that your remembrance and celebration of Christ's resurrection and yours is continuing, and that you're finding it to be life-giving and hope-sustaining. This morning in my devotional reading, I came to the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount is one of my very favorite sections of Scripture. I love the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm in good company there because it is and has been recognized widely as the greatest sermon ever preached. A couple of years ago, I spent almost an entire year reading the Sermon on the Mount every day in my devotions, uh, and it was a significant practice for me, and it's one that I would commend if you are looking for something new to do in your devotional time. And in the Sermon on the Mount, as the master, rabbi, philosopher, virtue teacher, Jesus draws on the Jewish wisdom, literature, tradition, and also the Greco-Roman virtue tradition in order to radically redefine reality for his disciples. He's describing for them uh, the nature of this new kingdom that he's bringing and what it looks like to, to live into that kingdom. And in doing so, he, cre- he crafts an absolute masterpiece of a sermon one that's fascinated the church for centuries. The Sermon on the Mount is the most studied, most commented upon, most preached text in the church's history from its very earliest days. In fact, there is a whole genre of scholarly literature that's committed solely to summarizing the existing scholarly literature on the Sermon on the Mount. And so gallons and gallons of ink have been spilled on understanding, interpreting, and applying the Sermon on the Mount. But despite all this, as John Stott says, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood, and certainly it is the least obeyed. And so Christians have always understood that there's something deeply profound and transformative and important in what Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount, despite the trouble that we have often had interpreting it and living in light of it. And I want to talk about just one portion of the sermon that really stood out to me as I read, Jesus opens the sermon with the Beatitudes where he describes what true blessedness, true human flourishing looks like in the kingdom that he's bringing. Um, We did a series on this uh, last year, soon after we launched, uh, and really enjoyed that time. But Jesus talks about uh, what that flourishing looks like, uh, what blessedness is. He then moves to a consideration of the church's identity as salt and light, and then he turns to a consideration of obedience and the law. And he says something really provocative in Matthew 5, uh, beginning in verse 20. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And he spends the next large section of the sermon unfolding what that means. And it's important to understand what this greater righteousness is that Jesus is calling for. Greater righteousness in the way that Jesus uses it here is, is not about greater external acts of righteousness. Greater righteousness doesn't mean greater outward displays of obedience. The greater righteousness Jesus is talking about refers to an inner reality that flows out in obedience. He's talking about primarily a heart that's aligned with God in such a way that it produces obedience. And we see this in the verses that follow. In in verse 21 of Matthew 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, what Jesus isn't doing here is he's not doing moral math to tell you that hateful feelings or calling someone a fool 
is somehow just as destructive and heinous as murder. He's not, he's not drawing moral equivalence here. Murder is still worse than hate. But his point is that if you have external fruit, if you have uh, the absence of murder in your life, but you lack the internal root, you have something, but you don't have righteousness. It's not okay just to say, well, I didn't murder, so I'm okay. Jesus is saying if you have the, the, the root there, the root in your heart of hate and bitterness and anger, then you don't have righteousness. Jesus, it's important to know that Jesus doesn't use righteousness here in the same way that Paul does. When Paul talks about righteousness, the righteousness from God that comes through faith, he's talking about imputed righteousness, the alien righteousness that comes from outside of us and isn't merited by us, but rather by Jesus on our behalf. That's not how Jesus is using righteousness here. He uses righteousness to mean wholeheartedness. The greater righteousness that Jesus is talking about is maybe most easily understood uh, uh, alongside of its opposite. The opposite of the righteousness Jesus is talking about here is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy for Jesus is not saying one thing while doing another. He's not using hypocrisy to mean, for example, preaching against sexual immorality while engaging in sexually immoral behaviors. Hypocrisy, as Jesus uses it, is being externally righteous, but externally righteous only. It's outer conformity to God's law without a heart that's submitted and attuned to and walking in in glad obedience to God. And so in calling for greater righteousness, righteousness that exceeds even that of the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus is really just standing alongside the witness of the prophets who would say over and over again to God's people, your external behavior is meaningless if your heart isn't devoted to God. Remember Isaiah's rebuke, I think it's in Isaiah 29, he says, these people, they honor me with their lips while their heart is far from me. And I think we can see that this is Jesus's meaning by looking at the way that he ends this section. After applying this idea of greater righteousness to anger and murder, lust and sexual immorality and divorce, uh, he applies it to swearing oaths and and um, relating to your enemies. And he ends this section in chapter 5, verse 48. And my ESV Bible translates verse 48, therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And I looked it up, the NIV, KJV, the Christian Standard Bible, the NASB, they all translate that word, that Greek word teleos, as perfect. And my, my New Testament professor in seminary, Jonathan Pennington, who taught our Gospels class, said this is the worst English translation decision in the entirety of the Bible, because that Greek word teleos that's translated in our English Bibles as perfect actually means something a little bit different. It means completion and maturity in a goal achieved. And it's a very important Greek concept. The, the teleos person is the person who's not flawless, but the person who is singularly devoted in one direction, a person who is is wholeheartedly given to the pursuit of virtue. It's the wholehearted person. And so what Jesus is saying is that you are called to be whole as your heavenly Father is whole. That's the greater righteousness that he's talking about. He's saying external righteousness only, that's way easier. That's the appeal of legalism. That's I find my heart so drawn to that and tempted by that. Give me a box that I can check so I can feel good about myself. But Jesus is interested in something far deeper. He wants to form virtuous, wholehearted disciples who then manifest externally an inner devotion to God. That's the greater righteousness that he desires. And that's part of what we're seeking to cultivate in the disciplines and the practices that we embrace. As we embrace discipline and the duty of obeying God, we do so in order to cultivate virtue because we embrace practices and as we do, so we become. So we, but we do that aspiring to go beyond mere duty and mere discipline. 
to see our practice of those things over time form character and virtue in us. That's something of what we've been getting at in our series on practices for a pandemic. That's a series we're going to actually conclude this Sunday, and uh, we're going to talk about how that helps us and forms us for the long haul. I hope you'll join us. Uh, And then the following Sunday, we're going to get back into Genesis. And so uh, I hope the Sermon on the Mount uh, is an encouragement to you today. We'd love to take a moment, just pray for you. Father, we pray that you would give us hearts that are wholly devoted to you. We want, we desire that greater righteousness that Jesus commends. So we ask that you would form it in us as we walk in obedience to you. Would you please make our days of sheltering in place and staying at home be days uh, not of idle passing of the time, but they would be days of deep formation as we draw near to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love you. I miss you. I hope to see you, uh, as many of you as possible, tomorrow night at our Zoom prayer meeting at 7 o'clock. Watch your email for a link and a password to participate. And until then, peace be with you.